Welcome back to Ending Explained, a film review podcast that takes a deep dive into those tricky and intriguing open endings. I am back and I am so happy. I ended up finishing up season one of the pod a little earlier than expected because, as I mentioned before, I'm a law student and near mid-October after I had put out the last episode about favorite spooky season movies... I was getting real overwhelmed and needed to cut some stuff out, and even though this podcast is a really great creative outlet for me, it's also quite a bit of work, kind of like having to utilize my analytical skills and whatnot. So yeah, this was a very busy semester, but I am done. I just finished finals at the end of last week, and it is such a relief. Anyways, it is officially three weeks of Christmas break for me. I am back. This is the first episode of season two, and I am so excited. So let's get started. Today, we are talking about the 2016 musical La La Land. I decided that now was a great time to revisit one of Damien Chazelle's, in my opinion, best works, in anticipation of his new film, Babylon, which is coming out in theaters this Christmas. La La Land is currently streaming on, I think it's Amazon Prime. I think that's where I watched it. Yeah, it's Amazon Prime. So I thought that now would be a great time to do it because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's also kind of a Christmas movie, arguably. You know, it does the whole seasons uh timeline and it kind of ends and begins at Christmas time. So we're gonna call it a loose Christmas movie. So it's timely for that and also because Damien Chazelle is coming out with his next film, Babylon, which I've heard of gotten has gotten mediocre reviews. I'm still gonna go see it. It looks like the most chaotic movie trailer I've ever seen. So yeah. <laughs> but back to La La Land the background for this movie. It was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. It stars the lovely Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 91% critic score and an 81% viewer score. And I guess this is one of those movies where the critic score is higher than the audience score. The critics' consensus is La La Land breathes new life into a bygone genre with thrillingly assured direction, powerful performances, and an irresistible excess of heart. So this was one of those mega Oscar movies. It received 14 nominations. I think only Titanic and one other older film has ever achieved that many nominations. So it was nominated for basically everything it could possibly be nominated for, which is everything except, like, best short film, best foreign language film, that sort of thing. And it won six of them. So it won Best Director, Actress, for Emma Stone, Cinematography, Original Score, Original Song for City of Stars, and Production Design. And then, of course, there was the Best Picture debacle, where... La La Land was announced as the Best Picture winner. They came up and started giving the thank you speeches for a full couple of minutes. And then they had 
the uh, runners of the Oscars had to come back out and say, actually, it's Moonlight, that one. Not, not La La Land. Oof, that was, I don't know if I've ever had more secondhand embarrassment. I probably have, but that was, that was real rough to watch. <laughs> so my background with this movie, as I mentioned before, it is one of my absolute favorites. I'm not a huge musical person, but this movie just really does it for me. I fell in love with just the trailer when it first came out. And I'm a sucker for Emma Stone. I mean, who isn't? She's hilarious and just so genuine and so fun to watch. And yeah, it's just one of my favorite movies of all time. Let's jump into the plot summary. Oh, it's so good to be back, guys. While stuck in Los Angeles traffic, aspiring actress Mia has a moment of road rage directed at Sebastian, a jazz pianist. After a hard day at work, Mia's subsequent audition goes awry when the casting director takes a phone call during an emotional scene. That night, her roommates take her to a lavish party in the Hollywood Hills, promising her that someone in the crowd could jumpstart her career. After her car is towed, she walks home in disappointment. During a gig at a restaurant, Sebastian slips into jazz improvisation despite the owner's warning to only play traditional Christmas pieces. Mia overhears him playing as she passes by. Moved, she enters the restaurant and observes Seb being fired for his disobedience. As he storms out, Mia attempts to compliment him, but he brushes her off. Months later, she runs into Seb at a party where he plays in a 1980s pop cover band. After the gig, they walk to their cars and lament wasting a lovely night together despite their queer chemistry. Seb arrives at Mia's workplace, and she shows him around the Warner Brothers backlot, where she works as a barista, while explaining her passion for acting. He takes her to a jazz club, describing his passion for jazz and his desire to open his own club. Seb invites Mia to a screening of Rebel Without a Cause, and she accepts, forgetting a date with her boyfriend, Greg. Bored with the latter date, she goes to the theater and finds Seb as the film begins. When the screening is interrupted because the film print begins to burn due to a projector malfunction, Seb and Mia spend the rest of the evening together with a romantic visit to the Griffith Observatory. After more failed auditions, Mia decides, with Seb's encouragement, to write a one-woman play. He begins to perform regularly at a jazz club, and they move in together. Seb's former bandmate, Keith, invites him to be the keyboardist in his new jazz fusion band, which will give him a steady income. Although dismayed by the band's pop style, Seb signs on after overhearing Mia trying to convince her mother that he is working on his career. The band finds success, but Mia knows this is not the type of music Seb wants to perform. During the band's first tour, Seb and Mia have an argument. She accuses him of abandoning his dreams, while he claims that she liked him more when he was unsuccessful. Two weeks later, Seb misses Mia's play due to a photo shoot he had forgotten about. The play does not go as well as planned. Few people attend, and Mia overhears dismissive comments about her performance. Unable to forgive him for missing the play and for their prior argument, Mia breaks up with Seb and moves back to her hometown of Boulder City, Nevada. Seb receives a phone call from a prominent casting director who attended Mia's play and invites her to audition for an upcoming film. He drives to Boulder City and persuades her to attend. During the audition, Mia is asked simply to tell a story, 
In response, she sings about her aunt, a former stage actress who eventually died from alcoholism, inspired her to chase her dreams. Seb, confident the audition was a success, encourages her to devote herself to acting. Five years later, Mia is a famous actress and married to another man, with whom she has a daughter. One night, the couple stumbles upon a jazz bar. Recognizing the logo she had once designed, Mia realizes that Seb has opened his own jazz club. When he notices Mia in the crowd, Seb begins to play their love theme on the piano. A dream sequence unfolds in which the two imagine what might have been had their relationship thrived along with their careers. Seb and Mia acknowledge each other with a silent exchange of smiles before she leaves. Alright guys, I am going to tell you the one and only goal that I have for this podcast episode, and that is to convince everyone who did not like the ending to this movie that it's actually one of the best movie endings ever. I remember I saw this twice in theaters. It's been a while. I know that I have heard a lot from my mom and my mother-in-law that they did not like this movie specifically because the ending was such a big disappointment and I've heard along the same lines from a lot of people. And I'm just, I'm here to change my mom's mind and I'm here to change everyone else's mind who thinks the same way. So this is actually a good, happy ending. Both of these main characters, they got the dreams they were absolutely passionate about and longing for from the very beginning. And their love, I hate to break it to you, but their their love was not great. Seb, he was a jerk. He was a jerk boyfriend, honestly. I mean, there were a lot of sweet parts to their relationship. I'm not saying their relationship should never have happened, but it served its purpose. It ran its time. And it had it had an expiration date for good reason, and that was just best for everyone. I think the thing that really confuses people about the end of this episode, or <laughs> episode, the end of this movie is the end montage that kind of plays out when Seb and Mia make eye contact. Some people interpret this sequence as what would have actually happened had Mia and Seb stayed together, but I interpret it in a different way. And that ties into some of the themes and metaphors that I saw throughout this movie. One of the main themes or metaphors which helped explain that end montage is the idea of tradition versus revolution, old versus new. There's this very um, on-the-nose quote from John Legend. I forget what his name is in the movie. But he's talking to Seb and he's saying, you say you want to save jazz. How are you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? This end montage to the movie is kind of, I wouldn't say it's to the point where it's breaking a fourth wall. But this movie is doing the same thing where it's taking a traditional format that is completely dying out in popularity, which is the big musical. And it's changing things up a bit to be revolutionary, to be new, to be interesting. So 
I interpret that end montage as how this storyline would have gone if this movie had stuck to a traditional musical storyline. Musicals are dying out just like classic jazz is dying out. So to be successful, this movie itself, La La Land, the movie, had to reinvent musicals to do something different so that it wasn't stale. Maybe we like that. Maybe we hate it and yearn for classic traditionalism when it comes to musicals. Maybe we hate John Legend's take on New Age Jazz. Maybe we thought that that song was a bop. I did. <laughs> and I think that the filmmakers emphasized this point because that montage, it's, it's very much theater settings, if that makes sense. It's very overtly as if they are on a stage with props as opposed to real life throughout this whole montage. And that keys back to the fact that this is how the storyline would have gone if this was an old musical, an old traditional musical. And it's not, this is not what would have happened had they both chosen to stay together at the point when their relationship comes to an end when Mia gets the audition and get and gets the job and decides to pursue that while Seb stays back in LA and Mia goes to Paris, I think. So this this montage is not what would have happened had they chosen to stay together at that point. It reinvents their whole romantic timeline starting from the very beginning with the uh, very first time that they meet when Mia walks into the restaurant while Seb is supposed to be playing Christmas music and it starts off with them having this romantic, passionate kiss in that restaurant instead of Sebastian shoving his way past her like he did in reality. So this, this reimagining of their relationship is of their whole relationship, not just what could have been had they stayed together. So that's the way I interpret it. I really think that in reality, uh, their relationship just wasn't meant for the long haul. The idealized montage of their relationship wouldn't be how things would have actually turned out had they stayed together. It's more like these two characters who are huge romantics in their own way, it's those romantic characters' idea of what would have happened had they stayed together. That last look that they both give each other at the very end is bittersweet, but let's be honest, they both would have ended up hating each other. They just... Can you tell I'm not a huge fan of Sebastian? <laughs> I just... We'll get more to his character later, but he's just not great. He's just not great, and I am happy for Mia that she finds this other guy to settle down with and have a family. He seems real sweet. So in addition to that big theme of um, tradition versus revolution, there's also this push and pull between romanticism and pragmatism. This film so, so beautifully walks a wonderful line between reality and then romanticism or spectacle or however you want to define it. It's romantic in that both main characters in the end, they get their creative dreams and that's kind of a romantic imagining of these characters' storylines as opposed to pragmatic or realistic because that reality that they both get their their uh, creative dreams in the end, it's honestly really unlikely. 
sure, Mia is talented, but as the very beginning of the movie kind of makes clear to us, she's one in a million of other redheaded young women in LA trying to make it as an actress. I just thought that that scene where she's disappointingly walking out of the failed audition and just sees all these other women dressed in the same outfit as her with the same red hair. And not only that, but the entire gorgeous opening musical number where everyone is dancing around their cars stuck in traffic. They're all talking in the lyrics of that song about how they came to LA to pursue their dreams, even though it might be unrealistic. And so the fact that Mia ended up landing such a huge role when she had like no prior experience and she became so successful that she turned heads when she walks into a coffee shop. It's just that's a romantic imagining of her storyline. And then on the other hand, Seb, while it's not necessarily unrealistic that a guy can open a club and the club does well, the fact that he is able to specifically open a traditional jazz club that's actually successful and crowded every night is maybe even less realistic than Mia becoming a big-time actress. <laughs> I mean, the whole time, everyone is just trying to talk sense into him about how that idea for a traditional jazz club just won't be, won't be successful because people aren't interested in that sort of thing. But then in that end scene, it's like so crowded and obviously a popular place to come. So that's kind of the romanticism side of the ending of this movie. And then the more pragmatic side is that they don't end up together. And so that's that kind of goes to show how this movie walks a very fine line between overt romanticism versus realism. And I think another way that the film does this is with its amazing color palette. Like, are you kidding me? My eyes are just like gorging on this screen at almost every single shot. How would I, I would describe this color palette as, uh, let's say candy, candy technicolor, loud primary colors, and then that's contrasted in other scenes with real life drab coloring, like Seb's apartment when he's single, or Mia's coffee shop, or some of her auditions, it's very purposefully drained of color and then other scenes are just like bursting with with romantic unrealistic color it's beautiful and then along with the romanticism versus pragmatism what wins in the end in this movie is it love is it art is it tradition is it passion pragmatically they can't all win even more realistically next to none of them would win to the level that they do in this movie so the movie really is, again, walking that line between propping up romanticism, but also taking into account realism. And I think the message it's kind of trying to say about that is to truly commit to one passionate love, you have to sacrifice other passions and loves. So in this case, for Mia to truly commit to her passionate love of becoming a successful actress, she had to sacrifice the other passions and loves in her life in order to achieve that, and that included her personal romantic love for Seb. And vice versa, Seb could have followed her to uh, Paris 
when she was filming her movie, but he decided to, he realized that he had to sacrifice that love for her in order to truly commit to his other passionate love for opening his own traditional jazz club. And then one other big theme that I wanted to talk about is just general dreams and passion. This movie is a celebration of the fools who dream, as Mia puts so eloquently in her audition song. Both of these characters, they begin so close physically to their dreams, but still so far from actually achieving them. Mia is physically close, where she's working as a barista on a movie lot, while Seb is physically close to that tapas samba club spot, but so far away from financially being able to open his own club. And Mia is also just like so far from even being able to land a crappy television spot from all of the auditions that she's going through. So they're placing themselves physically close to, like physically adjacent to those dreams, even though they begin this movie so far away from actually being able to achieve those dreams. Uh, one of the lines that really stood out to me was when Seb is telling Mia about his dreams of opening the jazz club. And he's saying, but I know, I know people, I don't know if it would be successful, like people aren't interested in that stuff anymore. And Mia's very encouraging to him. She tells him, people love what other people are passionate about. Back to the Fools Who Dream scene. If you did not get a little teary-eyed at that Fools Who Dream scene with a stirring urge to drop all the practical things in your life and chase a dumb artistic passion that'll never ever ever pan out were you even paying attention to the movie because whew, man man that scene is just so powerful but again it's a happy ending because their relationship was what both of them needed at that time to follow their respective dreams to follow their respective passions Mia would never, ever have gotten the chance of a lifetime with the final audition and booking that part if it weren't for Sebastian not only being able to pragmatically drive to her when she had given up on everything and let her know about the audition, but also encouraging her so forcefully, encouraging her and pushing her even to the point where maybe it was a little too much, but apparently it was what Mia needed to get back out there and, and get the courage. And then on the other hand, Mia saved Sebastian from selling out on his traditionalist values by helping him see that the John Legend Band membership he was pursuing didn't align with his original passion for classic jazz and his dreams of opening his own classic club, even though the band was doing really well. So I think another lesson this this ending and this overall movie is trying to teach us is that dreams and passion are born through tough love and sacrifices. I really just love these two characters and how much they contrast, where Sebastian is this old school classic guy and Mia's a more modern gal. And I think this is really represented by both their their cars and their wardrobe. So Mia, she drives this Prius, 
And then Sebastian drives this old school car with a cassette player. <laughs> um, and then Mia's always wearing these like really amazing, oh, her wardrobe is just to die for. All of these bright colored dresses, modern cuts. And then Sebastian is always wearing kind of like these classic uh, button-up shirt, tie, suit sort of look. Sebastian, he is very resistant and stubborn. That's kind of like his form of traditionalism is just being super, super stubborn. He's solitary. He lives alone. He doesn't collaborate. No one can tell him what to do. Ugh. I think that's what bugs me the most about him. It's just that he's so kind of like full of himself that he can't like be humble ever. He always thinks that he knows better than everyone around him and he cannot handle someone else having power over him. And so that's another reason why I think that overall this ending is great because Sebastian is just naturally a solitary person who kind of just needs to live on his own for the most part. And then Mia is more geared towards being able to be collaborative and supportive and have a successful sort of family life with the husband and the kid that she ends up having. Obviously, we don't really get a confirmation about what Sebastian's endgame relationship status is, but the movie implies that he's single, but he's chasing his career, he's successful, and so, yeah, happy for everybody. Um, and then another little thing, did anyone else notice I'm, I'm thinking that this casting was intentional, where the man that they cast for Mia's end-of-movie husband is the same character, or the same guy who plays the main character in That Thing You Do, who was also a white guy obsessed with jazz. Thank you very much. <laughs> when I realized that, just the light bulb went off in my head. Oh, um, another thing that I love about this story, the storyline, the way that it's structured in the editing, is how it is sectioned off with seasons, and you have those title cards, cards for winter, fall, so, you know, you, you know the seasons. Um, <laughs> but it starts with winter, and ends with winter, and along with that, there's some other full circle moments from the beginning to the end of the film. So the very beginning of the film is set, it looks like some morning sunshine coming through the traffic. I'm guessing it's supposed to be rush hour traffic in LA where they're all stopped on that bridge and they're dancing on the cars. And then the very end of the movie is some night LA traffic that Mia and her husband are traveling through. And that's actually the reason why they end up at Seb's bar is because the traffic is just at a standstill, just like it was at the beginning. But this time, it's night, because the movie's coming to an end. Damien Chazelle, you're so clever. <laughs> and then another one that is pretty obvious is that at the very beginning of the movie, there's this actress that walks into Mia's coffee shop, where she's working as a barista, and you can just tell by everyone's reaction in the shop that she is this super famous actress who's just really revered and the manager of the coffee shop is like no no it's on the house and hands her her order 
And then the exact same thing happens at the very end when Mia has made it as a big time actress and she's recognized when she walks in, she gets coffee on the house. It's so great. It's such like a satisfactory ending. All right. So I also wanted to share a few things that I found from some of the filmmakers, their quotes that kind of help us understand the themes and overall ending of this movie. So Damien Chazelle, he said that he wanted to take the old musical but ground it in real life where things don't always exactly work out. And he also wanted to salute creative people who moved to Los Angeles to chase their dreams. He also said that the movie is about the struggle of being an artist and reconciling your dreams with the need to be human. And then, let's see, I've also got a quote, a couple quotes here from one of the producers named Fred Berger. He told The Hollywood Reporter that he, another producer, and Chazelle made a pact that under no circumstances will Emma and Ryan's characters end up together in the end. He will always play jazz and not a more acceptable form of music. She will always be an actress. This will always be a love letter to LA. We're not relocating to Paris. And then he also said that these untraditional aspects of the film's ending were the things that would make it connect and feel original and new. So that ties back to the whole the ending was very intentionally against the grain of what a typical musical, happy, romantic, they lived happily ever after ending would be. All right, let's switch gears and jump into the letterboxed review portion of this episode. So this is just where I go through the publicly posted letterboxed reviews and pick my favorite ones, which are either just really funny or quippy or really ring true to me. Let's see. So Lucy gave the film five stars. Her review says, this cured my depression and brought it back full force in the span of two hours. <laughs> Karsten gave this movie four and a half stars. She said, love this movie more than I love myself. <laughs> and Karsten, you gave this movie four and a half stars, but you love this movie more than you love yourself. All right. <laughs> All right. Letterbox reviewer Eric said, I literally have not and will not ever see a movie better than this. We really do not deserve movies this good. And they gave that five stars. And then another Lucy reviewed with five stars and said, Free Serotonin. That's, that's the whole review, just free serotonin, which I completely agree with. You can just feel it pumping in your brain with that opening scene. <laughs> Let's see, Demi gave it five stars and says, Good news for everyone who hates this film. This is the first time I've watched it that made me go, Hmm, okay, parts of this movie are very, very corny. Bad news for those same people. I still think the opening is so beautiful and celebratory and exuberant in a way I want more movies to be. I still think Emma Stone is so fantastic and deserved the Best Actress Oscar, and Damien Chazelle deserved his Best Director Oscar. This movie rules with a million exclamation points. <laughs> and then, let's see, another reviewer said, This single-handedly reinvented musicals, singing, dancing, cinematography, comedy, seasons of the year, the piano, every color on the entire color spectrum, 
romance, jazz, and pure joy. Also, um, in the middle of the ending, the projector messed up, and so they played it back, and I got to cry over that spectacular ending twice in a row. Oh, what a great experience. Let's see. Muriel gave it five stars and said, La La Land makes me want to be alive for one hour and 50 minutes. Then Sebastian says, welcome to Sebs, and it makes me want to be dead. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, and then last but not least, um, Lucy says, the ending of this movie sparked a strong and completely new emotional reaction in me, a mix of crying while dancing. Cry dancing, sometimes referred to as crancing, also known simply and elegantly as dying, because I guess. <laughs> so love those letterbox reviews. That's usually the first thing I do after watching a movie is jumping on letterbox, logging that I watched a movie, and then going and visiting what other people have written reviews about. It's a great time. I highly suggest it. Not sponsored in any way by Letterboxd. Uh, no ads here. I am definitely not popular enough to have that sort of thing, but just genuinely love the service of Letterboxd. And I'm assuming if you are listening to this podcast, especially if you have listened this far into the episode, you are also someone who loves film like me. So again, can't recommend Letterboxd enough. All right, guys, that's all I have for you today. If you would please, please subscribe, rate, and review Ending Explained on whatever platform you're listening on. I love, love being able to create this content for you guys, and this is a quick and easy way to show a little love in return. Till next episode, fellow movie lovers. <laughs>